right, well, let us start. Uh, we are beginning our Advent series this, uh, this Sunday, and so if you want to turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 2, if you have your Bible with you, turn it open to Luke chapter 2. We're going to be looking at uh, one or two verses here over the next several weeks uh, for Christmas this year for our Advent series. So we're going to be in Luke chapter 2 today, um, and I'm actually going to be reading uh, starting at verse 8, and so... Um, if you guys, I don't know if we're going to have that on the screen, so if you just want to uh, start with verse 8 in your Bible where you are. All right, so once again, we're in Luke chapter 2. I'm going to be starting in verse 8 once we get there. All right, well, it looks like we're all ready, so we're going to go and we're going to start in Luke chapter 2 and starting in verse 8. In the same region... Shepherds were staying out in the fields and keeping watch at night over their flock. Then an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Don't be afraid, for look, I proclaim to you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the city of David, a Savior was born for you, who is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped tightly in cloth and lying in a manger. Suddenly there is a multitude of the heavenly hosts with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and peace on earth to people he favors. When the angels had left them and returned to heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go straight to Bethlehem and see what has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. So this is the passage that we're going to be looking at and meditating on over the next several weeks for Advent. It is the passage announcing to the shepherds the birth of Jesus. In Luke chapter 2, right before this, in the first several verses, we read about Jesus' birth. The classic story, whenever uh, Mary and Joseph had gone to Bethlehem because of the annual census, they couldn't find a place to stay, and Mary had baby Jesus in a manger right? because there was no room for them. Right after this, we read about how on that same night, the angel appears to these shepherds to declare to them uh, the very first gospel. He, he declares to them for the first time, the first people hearing this, that Jesus, the Messiah, the Savior, Lord, as he says, has been born. The first Christmas message. And I thought this, there's a lot to look at in the angel's declaration. The, angel, the angel's declaration in verses 10 and 11 is what we're going to be really, that's the core of what we're going to be studying. But I thought it would be interesting to look at this because I, I, I thought how, you know, in a sense, we're all the shepherds. In a sense, we're all the shepherds. Here are these guys who were not eyewitnesses necessarily to the birth of Jesus, but instead hear about the birth of Jesus. They hear the Christmas message uh, through messengers. It's brought to them, and then they respond to it. And so I thought, you know, it's interesting. We can put ourselves in the shepherd's shoes or see ourselves, all of us, as shepherds because none of us are eyewitnesses to the birth of Jesus. All of us, whether you are following Jesus now or, uh, or, or not yet, all of us hear about Jesus, and we hear about the, the Christmas message, the gospel message, through messengers, through people who tell us about it. And then we have a choice before us to respond to that message. How will we respond? And so whenever we look at the shepherds here, we get a picture of what does it look like whenever people meet Jesus? What does it look like whenever people hear the gospel message, hear the message of Christmas, and then respond to that message in meeting Jesus? So 
it's a simple idea, but that's what we're going to be doing over the next several weeks for our Advent series through Christmas is looking at the angel's message and the shepherds and how they respond to that message. Through it, we learn about what it means to respond to Jesus and to Christmas in the announcement and response. What is the primary theme of it? What is the primary theme of the angel's message to them? And so what we, what we should take away as we go through this short series, both today and through all the next weeks, it is joy. Joy. That's the response that the angels call for from the shepherds in the passages. They tell them, we're bringing you good news of great joy. And so as we respond and, we're, and, and we're, we're figuring out what it means to respond to Jesus and how we know we have met him, we're going to be looking at what it means to live in joy that comes from Christmas. So in this passage, we're going to be looking at the angel of the Lord, the shepherd's fear, and then our joy. So let's begin with looking at the angel of the Lord. Whenever we have depictions of angels today, what do they typically look like? Well, they're typically cute in one way or another. They're cute either because they're infants, right? We like to have uh, angels depicted as these nice, plump little babies with wings, or they're cute because they're just like extremely safe, non-threatening, like people with wings, right? You know, they're wearing these white robes, and they're dazzling, and and, and pretty, but in one way or another, we always present angels in this way that's really cute and that's really sweet. And you might be seeing a lot of angels right now, and over the next several weeks, along with all the different Christmas decorations, we get to see a lot more of them now. And take note of what we usually depict our angels like. Now, here's the thing, is that whenever it comes to depicting angels, we do have a certain amount of freedom because the Bible doesn't tell us a lot. Uh, it doesn't tell us much about the appearance of angels and what, and what they look like. Uh, it tells us a little bit, and even the little bit of things it tells us, it's not super clear. So we do have some, shall we say, artistic freedom whenever we depict our angels. I don't think they were babies, okay? So maybe, maybe not quite that much artistic freedom, but we have some. Nevertheless, even though the Bible doesn't tell us much about what angels actually do look like, I doubt that many of our depictions of angels that we put up at Christmas or at any other time are very accurate. Because the common theme that you always see in ours, which is what I've said before, is that they're really cute, they're really pretty, really safe. But whenever we read Scripture, though it doesn't tell us much or anything very clear about exactly what angels look like, it does tell us something very clear about the way that people respond whenever they witness angels. And that response is about nine times out of ten, fear, terror whenever they witness angels. They respond in fear. They respond in cowering. They respond in, in covering their faces and hiding their eyes. And so what that tells me, whenever I take, you know, our plump little baby angels, and then I take the response of the shepherds, or I take the response of others in scriptures who, who have a, uh, a, a theophany, this is what we call a, some sort of a, a, a witnessing of glory, right? And I, and I match these pictures up of the plump babies and the terror. They don't really match. What we see, and, and, and so what I think we can say, is that we don't really represent them completely correctly. The shepherds, it says in this passage, it is, uh, it, it's nighttime, and they are watching their flock. Scholars tell us that we can uh, infer from reading this 
that Jesus' birth was actually sometime in between the spring or late summer. So even though we celebrate Christmas in uh, winter, Jesus' birth is actually sometime in the spring or late summer because that's the time of year that the shepherds would have been out with their flocks like this. doesn't mean there's anything wrong with the timing of Christmas, just it is what it is. So they're out and they're watching their, their flocks at night. You can put yourself in their shoes or in their sandals. They're, they're watching their, their flock. They're, they're looking over them. It's nighttime, and this is an ancient society, so they're not next to a highway where there's loud cars. They're not next to a city with bright lights clouding the sky, right? There's no airplanes flying overhead. It's quiet. There's nothing but the sound of their sheep, maybe their fire if they had one. And out of nowhere, in the midst of this quiet night, silent night, like we, like we sing, in the midst of this, an angel appears among them. And like I said before, they have the typical response that we read about in the Bible, which is terror. Notice it doesn't just say that they were startled, right? We can all identify with that if they would have been startled. You know, I mean, just if they would have been sitting there and, and a normal person would have walked up to them, they might have been startled by that, much less an angel appearing among them. But it doesn't say they were startled. It says this. It says, terrified. It says that they were terrified by what they saw. No, why are they terrified rather than just startled? What is it about the angel of the Lord who appeared before them? It tells us clearly in, in uh, verse 9 of what we read. It says that the angel appeared before them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were terrified. You see, this is why they are not just startled by what they saw or, um, or nervous by this unexpected visitor standing among them, but rather that they had gone past all of those emotions to terror because it was not just a surprise visitor. It was the glory of the Lord shining around them in the midst of the night that had come with this angelic visitor that produced terror in them. Why is that? You see, every time that we see people exposed to the glory of God throughout Scripture, the response is terror, is fear. We can see this going back to Moses. Whenever Moses was on Mount Sinai receiving the law, the Ten Commandments and the rest of the law that came with that, he was receiving it and he requested one thing of God, that he would get to see the glory of God. Now, he was already on the mountain that was covered in a cloud and in thunder. He was already before this mighty scene, but he recognized that even with what he was getting to see, it was not the full glory of God. And he wanted to see the full glory of God. And so he requests of him in Exodus. He says, I want to see your glory. Let me see it. Let me see you. That's a good thing to desire. But what God tells him is no. He says, Moses, you cannot see my glory because to see my glory would kill you. You wouldn't be able to survive it. It would be too much for you, right? This would be, in, in Moses' case, what God is telling him is it would have been a, a death by terror for you to see what, what you are asking to see. So instead, what it says he does is he hides him in the cleft of a rock, and he lets him to see his glory pass by. So he gets to see this, this somewhat veiled vision of the glory of God. 
So we see that we, we see terror, fear, separation in Moses. Whenever we go to the new, there's a, and there's a lot of more examples in the Old Testament, but when we move forward into the New Testament, we can see examples of how whenever people witness the glory of God, it produces fear and terror in them. Go to the story of Jesus calming the storm. The, Jesus and the disciples are in the boat on the Sea of Galilee. A great storm comes upon them. And the disciples are afraid of the storm. But there's this interesting thing that happens. Jesus stands up and he calms the storm. And the disciples are not now calmed. It says they are afraid of the storm. So you would assume that if the storm is calmed, that they would now be calmed. But no, if you read it closely, what does it say? After the storm is calmed, it says now they are terrified. What Greek scholars tell us is that the language is clear in the story, that they go from uh, one state of fear to an increased state of fear, as the English indicates to us by saying they're afraid and then terrified. Why? Why are they more afraid now than they were before, now that the storm is calmed? Because whenever Jesus stood up and with his word made that storm stop, cease, they witnessed the power of God. They witnessed the power of God in Jesus in, in a way and in a measure that they, even though they were living with Jesus, who was the God-man, they were not used to seeing. Consider Paul in the book of Acts as he is on the road to Damascus, and Jesus stops him on his way and shines his glory upon him, and he, is, he falls off his horse and is blinded and is caught up in the terror of the moment. This is something that we see every time people are exposed to the glory of God throughout the Bible, and we see it in the story of the angel and the shepherds as well. What I think this should cause us to think about and to wrestle with with, as we look at this passage and the others that are similar to it is this, is that we tend to domesticate God. We tended to, to domesticate God and, and pretend as though, you know, he's not quite as all-powerful as he is. So powerful that if we were to witness his raw power, it would, it, it would be too much for us to witness, right? We would be terrified like the disciples. We often think of God more, um, more cuddly and cute and sweet, who, if we say to him, let me see your glory, then we'll get to have a warm, fuzzy experience of his glory, rather than what he said to Moses, which is, no, that would kill you. No, you would die. You wouldn't survive it. We tend to domesticate God and water him down. The fact that the Bible repeatedly shows us terror instead of comfort when people enter his presence, should stand out to us and cause us to pause and think and consider, what do I actually think about God? What do I actually think about this God whom I claim to have a relationship with and who I claim to worship? Do I domesticate him and, 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 and water him down and make him less than what he truly is? Whenever people are exposed to the real God, we see an experience that is often different from the one that we assume about him. So here's the point for this section. That our God is infinitely holy, powerful, and knowing. Those, and and I, I choose those three words on purpose. We'll see as we continue on. He is infinitely holy, infinitely powerful, and infinitely knowing. This is why people are terrified whenever they witnessed his glory. Because of his holiness, 
It is terrifying for sinful man to enter into that holiness. Because of his infinite power, it is intimidating, it is scary to go into that kind of power. And because when we take these two things together, that he is also infinitely knowing, there is nothing hidden from him. There is no part of our lives, of our hearts or our thoughts that are hidden from him to enter into this kind of presence of infinite knowledge, power, and holiness is terrifying for sinful humanity. But before we go into that deeply and consider why we are so afraid of this infinite holiness and power in God, I want us to just ask ourselves this question. Do you know the real God? Do you know the real God? Not the domesticated God, not the one that is watered down and shallowed out and and, and diminished that we often... Um, that we often have, but the real God. Because what I think we do is we often have this tendency to project ourselves onto God and think that he is very, very much like us, just a little bit bigger, right? He, uh, he, he is, uh, um, you know, he, he's morally better than us, but we usually don't go so far as to understanding his infinite holiness and so on. We tend to project ourselves onto God in a a sense that waters him down and diminishes him, but we need to resist this and make sure that we know the real God and that we worship the real God. Now, how do we do this? You know the real God through a few different ways. You know the real God through his word. It'll be hard for you to continue going on with this domesticated version of him if you're in his word and reading about these stories and you're seeing how people experience God and how... Usually we don't approach him as if he is the same God that they are witnessing and experiencing there. You know, we approach him in a watered-down way. If we read about what he says about himself. So we make sure that we know the real God by being in his word and seeing what he says and seeing what happens whenever people know him and comparing it to our experience. We also know the real God in prayer. Where we try to go before him and we enter into his presence when we go before the throne in Jesus Christ, knowing him in his word and in prayer, we also know him in corporate worship. Whenever we sing songs, which I don't know if you know this, but at Redeemer, we actually um, we, we filter out and we're discerning about the kind of songs that we sing here at Redeemer. We try to sing, we, we, we do our best to present songs for corporate worship that are theologically sound that call us into worship, and that bring us into the presence of the real God. We try to choose songs that will not just reflect our tendency to project ourselves onto God, but instead ones that that introduce us to the true, the real God. So one of the ways that you can make sure that you stay in touch with, that you know that you are worshiping the real God, is through corporate worship. Coming together and singing songs that are biblically uh, faithful, theologically sound, and, and, and joining together before this true God. You can also be helped by reading good Christian books, reading theology books to make sure that you are knowing the real God. So let's go back to the terror, the shepherd's terror and fear. And this, um, this pattern that we see of people being consistently afraid of God's presence in Scripture. Like I said, there's a lot of different times in in, in the Bible that we can go and look and see how whenever people met God, they responded in fear. 
But let's go back to the very first time. Do you know what the very first story was in the Bible that shows us someone who was afraid when they met God? Well, the very first time that we see this is all the way back at the beginning in the book of Genesis. In Genesis chapter 3, we read about Adam, who is the first man who is afraid to meet God, who is afraid to see God. In Genesis chapter 3, we read about the fall. Whenever uh, mankind, Adam and Eve, had for the first time sinned against God and therefore had fallen from their original created state. Because before this, there was no sin in the world. There was no sin in humanity. God and man were living together in perfect relationship, in perfect intimacy, in perfect harmony with one another. It says that, that God and man would walk together in the garden, that they were so close. You see, before, there was no fear of the presence of God, and there was no danger of being in that presence or, or exposed to the glory of God. But then what happened is that the serpent came into the garden and tempted Adam and Eve to rebel against God by breaking his one rule, his one command of the garden. They decided that it would be better to choose their own way than to obey God, so they, they break that command. They sin against him. And now God is coming into the garden, it says. He is coming to the garden, but Adam and Eve this time are not eager to walk with him, but they now hide. It says that Adam goes and he hides behind a tree, and the Lord is calling out to him, Where are you? Where are you? And Adam says, I'm here I am, I'm hiding behind the tree. And it says that God asks him, Why are you hiding? And Adam says to him, Well, I was afraid. You see, here for the first time we read about a person being afraid of the presence and glory of God. And why is he afraid? In Genesis chapter 3, verse 10, it says, uh, He tells God, I was afraid because I was naked, and so I hid. That's interesting. All this time they had been walking with God, living with him in the garden, and all this time they had been naked. They were literally physically naked. They, they, they didn't wear clothes at this point, it tells us. So he's always been naked. Was he unaware of that? You know, did he lack self-consciousness to such an extent that he was unaware that he was physically naked? No, that's not what it's saying here. It's not as though it suddenly dawned on him that he wasn't wearing clothes, and he said, you know, where's my shirt, and where's, where's my tunic? That's not, what he, that's not what he's saying whenever he says, I realized that I was naked, and so I, I hid from you. He's talking about something else. They had always been naked, but this is something different. This is exposure of what you don't want seen. That's what he realizes whenever he says, I realized I was naked. He realized that there was something now exposed about him that he did not want seen. He realized, he recognized his vulnerability. He recognized his weakness and his imperfection before God. You see, this is why today we are so afraid of, of ourselves being seen, right? This is what nakedness means for us today, right? And the reason that we, that we wear clothes and that we put so much thought into the type of clothes that we wear so that it, it covers what we want covers, it cover it and it accentuates what we want accentuated and so on because we want, there are certain parts of ourselves that we know that we do not want exposed, that we do not want seen, we recognize our vulnerability. And it is this that Adam recognizes before God and that he is afraid because this is what sin has done. Sin makes it now impossible 
for man to walk alongside with God because he knows that there is now an imperfection in him that he does not want the holiness of God exposing. There is now darkness in him that he does not want the light of God shining upon, and so he is afraid. And it's that very same fear of nakedness before God that's the reason that Moses could not go into the presence of God, that the disciples feared, that Paul was blinded by, and that any other stories we read throughout Scripture, even to us today, who are afraid of going into the presence of God, it's that same fear of our nakedness, of, of what we know that is inside of us, of what we have done, of what we have thought, of, of the, the loves, of the sins that we have harbored and held onto that we don't want exposed by God. This is what this fear of the Lord is. In 1 John 4.18, it says that we fear God because fear involves punishment. We're afraid of going into his glory and experiencing the wrath upon our vulnerable state that we do deserve. And so here's our second point. This terror that we see is produced by sin. Sin produces a terror of the holiness of God. Sin produces a terror of the holiness of God. Once again, why are sinful men and women so terrified in the presence of God? It is because we are afraid of being exposed for what we really are. You know, imagine this. Imagine that you are impersonating a police officer. You, uh, you put on your, uh, the best costume you can find, and maybe you put some lights on your car, and you start going around Lafayette, driving the streets and, and, and going around, maybe at a festival or wherever else, and you're impersonating a police officer, trying to get people to believe that you're actually a police officer. I don't know why you, you would do this. You know, you, you have to be a pretty demented person, disturbed. But let's just imagine, okay? You're trying to do this. You're impersonating a police officer. And you might be nervous because, because you know the truth. You know that you're not a cop. You know that you don't have the authority that you're supposedly going around with. So you might be a little nervous, but, but you could get by. But then what happens if a real police officer comes walking by? What happens if uh, the, the festival year, all of a sudden now a, a group of real cops comes walking up into the area that you're in or comes up and talks to you? You might have been a little nervous before, but now you're going to be really scared. Now you're going to be really afraid. Why? Because you are going to be afraid of being exposed by the real thing. What you were impersonating before, trying to pass off as, the, the authority that you are pretending to have that you actually don't, now when that real authority comes in, it's going to be terrifying. It's going to be scary. Why are sinful men and women so afraid of the presence of God? Because in a sense, we're impersonators. We've lived our lives with a pretend authority that we do not legitimately have. By choosing our own way, by choosing our own word, by choosing our, our, ourselves over God, by listening to ourselves over God's word, just like Adam and Eve had chosen, that it was better for them to listen to the word of the serpent and to choose what they desired over listening to God. They were taking an authority that they did not have. We do the same thing all the time. Whenever we sin, whenever we, 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 we harbor and worship an idol, what we are doing is trying to uh, operate with an authority that we do not legitimately own. So whenever that authority presents itself to us in the glory of God, in the holiness of God presents itself to us, we are now exposed by the real thing, and that's terrifying. 
We try to be our own masters and lords. So whenever we come into the presence of the real master and lord of life, that's what happens. Sin will keep us in fear, and that fear will keep us from going into the presence of God. You see, it's not that it's necessarily God as God and man as man that creates the problem of God and man being unable to come together. Because we read in the garden, God created man to live in his presence. That's what we were made for. The problem is not that he is God and we are people and that God is God and man is man cannot live together. It is our sin. It is our sin operating in our hearts and minds. It is our fallen flesh still within us that prevents us and that causes this fear that wants us to try to do everything we can to stay out of that presence. So let me ask you, are you allowing sin to keep you from God? Are you allowing sin in your life to keep you from going into the presence of God? I think that there are many people in our world, maybe even many people or, or, or some people in here, who are holding on to unbelief because they are afraid of the presence of God. There are many people in the world who are holding on to unbelief, who are doing everything they can to keep God out of their life because they are afraid of that glory. They are afraid of that presence that would expose them for what they really are. That would expose their sin. And so they might have all kinds of sophisticated, sophisticated sounding reasons, but at the truth and in the heart is a holding on to unbelief driven by fear of the glory of God and of his presence and what that might reveal. But it's not just those who are holding on to unbelief, but Christians, believers, Sons and daughters of God, even we might be allowing sin-produced fear to hold us back from God. We might still be like Adam, many of us, like Adam and Eve hiding behind trees, hiding behind fig leaves, trying to stay away from the presence of God because we are still afraid of our nakedness. Christian, how many of you have been, and maybe it's not even that you've been staying away from church because you're afraid of his presence. Maybe you've even still read your Bible. Maybe you've still prayed some, but your heart is guarded. It's all too easy for us to deceive ourselves and to fool ourselves and to start going through the acts and the motions of Christianity like, sure, we might read a page of the Bible. We might read a few chapters of Scripture. But are our, our hearts open to what Scripture or the Holy Spirit working through Scripture wants to do in that reading? Instead, we read it with our hearts closed off and guarded. Sure, we might say some words in prayer, but we don't, and, but we don't go into the presence of God. We don't seek the presence of God in prayer. Like I said before, opening our hearts to him Instead, we kind of stay behind a tree in fear and just call out our prayer to him. In corporate worship, we come, but we don't allow the music and the songs that we are singing to do their work, for the Spirit to move through them, to penetrate those walls that we put up, and to work in our hearts, because we are afraid of our nakedness still. Don't fool yourselves. 
Don't deceive yourselves. And don't be so foolish to think that you cannot be, or that don't be so foolish to think that you are beyond still hiding behind the trees and the fig leaves. Friends, no matter how long you've been walking with God, we are all very much capable of doing that. In fact, I think it is a, a tendency that we must constantly be vigilant against and aware of. Because our fallen flesh, the sin that is still in our hearts, will de- desires nothing more than to place up walls between us and the glory of God. The devil, all of his temptations and all of the sins that he throws before you and all the thoughts that he whispers into your mind and the past that he wants you to walk down, it's not just about getting you to do something bad. It's about trying to get you away from God. Are you allowing sin? And are you allowing sin-produced fear to keep you from God? Don't allow it. That's easier said than done. How can we be freed from that fear? There's only one way to be delivered from this fear that we read about in this passage that we see in our own lives, and that is this, love. Love is the only way that we will be delivered, that we can be delivered from that fear. In 1 John 4, 18 through 19, the apostle says, There is no fear in love. Instead, perfect love drives out fear because fear involves punishment. So the one who fears is not complete in love. We love because he first loved us. Fear, I mean, love is the only thing that is powerful enough to drive away that fear. The only thing powerful enough to overcome that fear of our nakedness. Consider it this way. The love between a husband and wife. A husband and wife are two people who present their nakedness to one another literally with their bodies, but also spiritually and emotionally, they fully open themselves to one another. Now, for the new young couple going into marriage, this can be intimidating. This can be scary, right? To, to completely present yourself, your body, soul, and, and emotions to another person. How are you capable of doing it? What is the only thing that, that you can have to make you capable of knowing that I can present myself to my spouse? my husband or wife, and not be afraid of the nakedness that I'm about to reveal to them because of the covenant of love in marriage. It's the covenant of love in marriage that creates the security of knowing that I can bear myself completely before this other person and not be afraid of rejection, not be afraid of humiliation, not be afraid of any kind of punishment from the other Because love drives out fear. And so it is with God. Whenever we are afraid of our nakedness being revealed to him, the nakedness of our sin, the darkness within us, our rebellion against him, the only thing that can drive out that fear is his love. And what John says to us, knowing that before we loved him, while we are naked, while we are sinful, right, while we are uh, in our wretched state, in that, in that place, he loved us. But how does he show his love for us? John tells us this as well. He said, God's love was revealed to us in this way. God sent his one and only son into the world so that we might live 
through him. Love consists in this, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. You can hear there the same message that was preached first by the angels to the shepherds. John says we have no reason to fear. Our fear is driven away because God has proved his love by sending his son who has washed away our sin. What did the angels say to the shepherds? They said, fear not because God has sent his son, the Messiah, the Lord, the Savior. When you see what God has done in sending his son, Jesus Christ, how Jesus Christ, who came at Christmas, came at Christmas, uh, born in a manger so that he might die on the cross, so that he might wash away our sin, so that in his nakedness, being punished upon the cross, our nakedness, when we go before God, might be, uh, might be uh, embraced so that our sin might be forgiven, so that we can go before the Lord, being completely revealed as we are, completely known by him, and yet received in his holiness. Whenever we see what God did for us in Christmas and at Calvary, and we behold it in our hearts, step out away from behind the trees, take off the fig leaves, remove the walls and the guards that we put from our heart so we can behold it, then our fear can be turned into the joy that the angels preached and sang of. Consider all those people in the Old and New Testament who had witnessed the power of God in storms and in thunders and in fire. Do you think they ever could have imagined how the glory of the Lord would be revealed at Christmas? Whenever his glory would not be revealed in thunder and smoke and fire and whirlwinds, that his glory would be revealed in a baby. Consider what God has done for you and that he comes to you and he accepts you right where you are, as you are, You see, this love, that's the only thing that will enable you to be freed from your fear. So our last point, the love of God drives out our fears. This is one of the ways that you can know that you have met God. Like I said before, I think one of the interesting things, and the reason that I want us to to meditate on this passage over Advent this year, is because it shows us what it looks like whenever someone has met God. It shows us what it looks like whenever someone responds to the message of Jesus. What this tells us is that you can know that you have met God whenever you no longer live in fear. Do you still live in fear? Do you still allow sin-produced fear to hold you back from God? Or instead, has your fear been removed and replaced by great joy? This is one of the ways that you can test your heart, look at your life, and know that you have met God. Embrace the love of God, then, and be joyful. Whatever fears you might have and hold on to, fear of punishment from God, or whether they be fears of rejection, of failure, fear of the future, fear of death, all of the fears that we hold on to, whether they are directed towards God or directed towards people. You know, we can be driven by and and operate on fear just in our lives when it comes to our work and comes to our relationships. The love of God can drive out that fear as well. Are you afraid of rejection from people? Are you afraid of uh, how people might perceive you, that they might 
catch a little glimpse of your nakedness, the love of God can drive out those fears as well. Because whenever you know that you have been holy and fully accepted by the love of God in his grace, well, then that, that frees you from fear of being rejected by anyone else. If I have been accepted by him, by the most glorious of all persons, right? By the most sovereign of all authorities, by the most beautiful of all wonders. If I've been accepted and loved by him, what does it matter if he or she or them or they or whoever else rejects me? I can handle that because I've been loved by God. Am I afraid of failure anymore? No, because God has seen God has seen the things in me that are so much worse <laughs> than any failures I could have now, and He has accepted me still, still seen me as worthy of being His son. I don't I don't need success, and I'm not afraid of failure. I have His love. I'm not afraid of future of the future because He holds it in His hand. And I'm not afraid of death because death means union with Christ. You see, all of our fears are silenced when we embrace God's love. And so the invitation to the shepherds to fear not is an invitation to us. This Christmas, let us all accept that invitation. Meet Christ and experience Christmas joy. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this message. We thank you for the message that comes from the angels and that is extended to us as well. Lord, for all of us who have been operating on fear, Lord, for all of us who have been living with a sin-produced fear that holds us back from you, Father, I ask and I, and I declare in your name that you would drive out those fears. Lord, let your spirit come and work through the word, through prayer, through our worship, to penetrate our hearts, to tear down the walls that we built up so that you might come into our heart, Lord, and help us to see that in your grace we are wholly loved and accepted, that this grace might transform us, and that we might experience that great joy that comes from the good news of our Savior being born. We pray this in your name. Amen.